If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 23. We'll cover the last two verses of, um, or actually just the last verse of chapter 22 as a bridge, but uh, we'll cover all of chapter 23 this afternoon. Yesterday morning, if you would have talked to enough people or hung around outside Churchill Downs, you would have found someone um, that would tell you their pick for the Derby was a sure thing, that it was a a guarantee. Um, And yet, this was random Google search. The playwright, Neil Simon, is quoted as saying, there's no such thing as a sure thing. That's why they call it gambling. Um, And as far as horse racing goes, he's completely right. There's no such thing as a sure thing, right? Um, in fact, it often seems that not just in, in gambling, but in life itself, it feels like there's very little that is a sure thing. What can we trust and know for sure? Um, can we trust statistics? Can we trust the claims of commercials? Um, can we trust our coworkers? <laughs> Who in our lives is a sure thing? Who are the people that we can always count on? Is anything a sure thing? We could get pretty cynical thinking about that, or we, maybe we're just being somewhat realistic about it. But as we look at uh, Acts 23, this theme of God's sovereignty is prevalent once again throughout the chapter. Sovereignty meaning um, God's control of all that happens in his world, that nothing happens outside of his rule as king. And through that truth communicated in Paul's story and through the words of Jesus to Paul, we find an encouragement, and this is the encouragement that I want us to to meditate on this afternoon, and it's this. Take courage. Take courage, which are words that Jesus says to Paul. Take courage. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for his children. Take courage. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for his children. I confess that this is nothing new from the book of Acts. It's probably something we've studied that's similar, and it's nothing new from this section, and yet we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of the faith that we have that nothing can thwart, nothing can discourage, nothing can derail God's plans and purposes for his children. So if you're looking for a sure thing in life, then then this is it. If you're looking for a trustworthy person, then it's Jesus. Uh, who will never let us down, never leave us or forsake us in a world where we seem, where it seems like we can't trust anyone or anything and in a world where we never seem to know what's going to happen next, we can take courage and we can know that God is for us and nothing can derail or frustrate his plans and his purposes for those who are his children. What would you say is the opposite of fear? I mean, <laughs> I just ruined it. What's the opposite of courage? Take a guess. Fear, yeah, man. Can we rewind? No, probably not. The opposite of courage is, is fear. Um, and so we're reminded again of this great command throughout Scripture spoken over and over again, which is do not fear. So Scripture is always telling us. And so whatever comes our way, no matter how uncertain or fearful we might be about the future, if we're children of God through faith in Jesus, then we're, we're called this afternoon to not be afraid. But the opposite, it's to take courage. Take courage. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for his children. And if you are his child, then make that personal. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for you.
Before we read Acts 23 and discover this truth, let me just kind of remind you of what we saw last week that, that's leading up to this particular point in the narrative. In chapter 21, Paul arrived in Jerusalem, fresh off the boat from his third missionary journey. Um, and within the first two days of, of arriving, he's reunited with James, uh, one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and also with the rest of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And he shares with them all that, that God had done through him. And while they rejoiced at, at God's ministry through Paul, they also knew that there was some false information spreading around Jerusalem that was causing problems. And this information was mainly that that Paul was telling ethnically Jewish Christians who converted to Christianity that they should not keep any more, they should not keep any of their former Jewish customs, including circumcision and other, thing, other things. This probably stemmed from the fact that the church was very clear that Jewish customs like circumcision were not necessary for a person to be a child of God through faith in Jesus. Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. But it was not true that Paul told the Jews to forsake all of their traditions. And so this was false information. And so to prove this, that, that this wasn't what Paul taught, the Jerusalem church asked Paul to sponsor four guys who'd taken a vow uh, according to their Jewish traditions. And he willingly did that. Um, and this was a PR move, as it were. Um, but on the day that Paul went into the temple to complete this purification rite, some of the Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, uh, falsely accused Paul of bringing a Gentile named Trophimus into the inner court of the temple. And these guys stirred up the crowd to the point that Paul was going to be beaten to death, except for the fact that the Roman authorities stepped in. This Roman tribune not only protected Paul, but then he gave him the opportunity to defend himself to the mob. And so Paul shared his testimony of having been a deeply committed uh, Jew before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and called him to become a Christian. And the risen Jesus not only convinced Paul that he was the Messiah, but then he called Paul on a special mission to take the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. And it was then at the mention of the Gentiles that the crowd went wild once again and not in a positive way. And so Paul was removed from this mob and he was imprisoned having avoided a severe beating because of his Roman citizenship. And that's where we pick up the narrative in Acts 22, verse 30. Let me read that verse and then all of chapter 23. Follow with me. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that's the Roman tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead 
that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have, what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What an interesting story. Uh, lots of division, lots of secrecy and plots and scheming. Um, 
at this point in the narrative, this Roman tribune, who we later find out his name is Claudius Lysias, this guy has saved Paul's life twice. <laughs> once from the, the mob that was beating him for this false accusation, once from the mob um, that wanted to beat him after he said that he was a messenger to the Gentiles. And yet it's clear from, from chapter 30, verse, um, from verse 30 of chapter 22, that this guy still has no idea why everyone wanted to kill him. He doesn't know what the charge against Paul was. And so he commanded the Jewish chief priests and the council to meet so that they could figure this out. And when they gathered, he brought Paul down to them. And in doing this, he creates a third situation to save Paul's life from. Um, there's two scenes in this, in verses one through 10 of this council meeting. The first is Paul's feisty interaction with the high priest and the, the council. And the second is of the division and the argument that Paul caused by this simple statement about the resurrection. And so let's just call this first scene, if we're just taking notes to try to grasp what's going on here. The first scene is sharp words. Sharp words, verses one through five. So Paul begins his defense to this council with the simple statement, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I don't think Paul is con confessing perfect moral purity, but probably given the context of what he's been accused of, he's probably referring again to his commitment to Jewish scruples, to Jewish customs. He's going to say later on in Philippians that if anyone was a committed Jew, it was him. And even to that day, he says he didn't feel that he had violated God's law with regard to these stipulations. Given that his, his supposed uh, given his supposed disregard for Jewish customs is why the people in Jerusalem were so angry with him, it makes sense that he's trying to start out his defense this way, saying, listen, I've got nothing against Jewish customs. In fact, I've kept them all. And yet his strong statement earns him a, a slap or maybe more a, a punch in the mouth ordered by the chief priest whose own lack of integrity may have caused his conscience to sort of be stung by Paul's words. Ananias was known, it's recorded by Josephus, that he was someone who mishandled temple finances, and many people said he was a glutton. And so it, it, it's probably that um, he's not a fan of a guy who's being accused of wrongdoing, professing a clear conscience, because that's not something that he had. And he didn't like this guy saying he had a clear conscience when Ananias didn't himself have one. But Paul responds to that slap by saying that God's going to strike him uh, because he was a whitewashed wall. He was a, a man who looked pure outwardly but was rotten on the inside. It didn't matter how white his robes were. As Jesus said to the religious leaders, inside he was full of death. And his disinterest in justice was evidenced by the fact that he's willing to strike Paul, which was contrary to the law. He didn't care about justice hit that guy because he said something that offended me. But Paul's words are, are rebuked um, by the people standing by because they say, you're speaking against the high priest. Paul says, I didn't know it was the high priest or I wouldn't have said that. Some think that Paul was maybe being sarcastic. Uh, I didn't know a guy like that could be the high priest. You know, <laughs> sort of snide remark. But he probably, whether because the, where the council was sitting, some people think, maybe they were behind him. Or um, John Stott says Paul notoriously had bad eyesight and he may have not been able to see um, who this man was. 
But in his response, he shows his integrity once again. And he professes that if he had known, he would have held his tongue. Why? Because he knows what the law says. He knows that you're not supposed to speak against the ruler. So Paul is, is showing himself in the midst of a, a sort of this court that is a joke. He's, he's showing that he is a man of integrity and he understands the law better than all these guys that are judging him according to the law. Um, the trial then abruptly moves from the sharp words to what we would call a scene of sharp division in verses 6 through 10. Sharp division. Paul began making his defense to the council by appealing to this standard of living and the fact that he was blameless. But when it became obvious that they weren't interested in whether or not uh, he was blameless, that they weren't interested in having a, a just trial, he decided uh, to use a different tactic, which we could call divide and conquer. Um, it, there are some crowds where it's easy to create division if you just know the right thing to say, you know. Um, if you're in Chicago, you can ask who makes the best deep dish pizza. And boy, you can divide a room very quickly. Uh, here in Louisville, you could ask, just in Louisville, it's not Kentucky. It's in Louisville, you could say, do you root for the cats or for the, the cards? And man, people will just go wild. If you wanted to be at the center of a riot yesterday at Churchill Downs, you could say, who won the Kentucky Derby? Because no one was really sure. Um, of course, these are all sort of petty, insignificant issues to divide over. But there's other things that divide us at a much deeper level, divisions that result because of people's deeply held beliefs. And we see this in our culture. There's so much strong division. And, and this is the case here. Paul looks around at this crowd and he's able to read them all because he was one of them at one point. Um, and, and he looks and he knows that the issue of the resurrection, which was at the core of his faith in Jesus, was also a major point of division amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke explains that for us, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So they were both Jewish believers, these two groups, but they differed on this major issue of the resurrection. And so Paul raises this issue in front of them, and suddenly he's not the major concern on the table anymore. He's connected to it, but now these two religious groups are more concerned about the doctrinal issue of whether or not the dead are raised. And suddenly Paul is, is kind of getting himself off the hook, as it were. But he's also, even more than that, he gets some unlikely allies in the Pharisees. They start defending him. Did you see what some of them say? In verse 9, some people stand up and say, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Wow how quickly things have, have turned, as it were. Um, in light of this, this sharp division that arises, the Roman tribune sees that another mob's about to break out, and he also recognizes that these guys aren't interested in justice. They're not interested in finding out if Paul was truly guilty of some crime. And so rather than watch Paul be torn apart by this mob, he once again rescues him from the situation saving his life for the third time. What a grace that God put this guy, this Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias. He was the man that God was using to preserve Paul's life. What do you make of Paul's behavior here? How do we understand what, what he's doing? Some people would contend that Paul, who is, we've seen is shown in parallel trials to those of, of Jesus, that he's shown acting contrary to Jesus. 
Jesus who did not open his mouth or revile when he was, when he was reviled, that maybe Paul was not acting that way. Others see Paul's words to Ananias as prophetic. Um, Ananias would be assassinated by the, by the Jews not many years later. And so maybe Paul was speaking some sort of prophetic word over Ananias. We might also wonder if Paul was just trying to take matters into his own hands. Was he trying to solve the problem of his imprisonment by using some sort of cunning or craftiness to, to get himself out of the situation? Or were these words the, the words that the Holy Spirit gave him in that moment to say, just as Jesus had promised, when you're arrested and you're called before people, I'll tell you exactly what to say. It's hard to, to say with certainty, but I'll say that I'm, I'm prone to think that Paul was acting with integrity in the situation. I think especially that first part, he's showing how he is a man that understands the law and wants to live underneath it as best he can to honor God. And yet I would also say that however we understand his behavior, we can recognize that Paul is a man that's under some pretty deep stress. If you can imagine what has happened within the course of just a few days, even just a couple of days, how, his, how what he thought was going to happen and what has actually happened has completely changed. He'd come to Jerusalem to deliver this gift that he'd been gathering for the, the poor in Jerusalem, for the church there. So he, he comes into to Jerusalem to do that, but his desire is to go beyond Jerusalem. He wants to get to Rome. And now all of that, those dreams seem to just crumble before his eyes. The deck seems to be completely stacked against him. His own people want to kill him. And so maybe he's just grasping, trying to find some way to get out of this situation that he'd found himself in. We've all kind of been there where things just fall apart. And you start to wonder how you got into that situation. You start thinking about the long-term consequences that could be coming. You're just looking for a way out, any way out. How do I get out of this situation? And it was in that moment when you think about Paul in these barracks, in fear, in despair, a moment when everyone seemed to be against him and nothing about the, the future seemed to be sure or certain. It's in that moment that Jesus comes and speaks to Paul. And so the story moves from this council into the barracks. In verse 11, we witness a moment of supernatural encouragement. So we've got sharp words and sharp division. And verse 11 shows us some beautiful supernatural encouragement. This is not the first time that this has happened to Paul. You might remember in Acts 18.9, he'd been run out of the synagogue and the Lord um, spoke to Paul these words in Acts 18.9, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And here again, the, the Lord calls Paul to not be afraid, but to take courage despite what appeared to be happening around him. You hear those words in verse 11 again? The following night, the Lord stood by him. Isn't that a great phrase? The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is a word I think that Paul needed, and it's a word that he would surely draw on during the three more trials that he was going to have to go through. Two years of being imprisoned, and then this perilous journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And this moment, this, this vision in the night, 
I think this would be Paul's anchor as we look at the Old Testament and even as we, as we sing about it, this is his Ebenezer. This is his rock of remembrance. He can hold on to this and remember what the Lord had said to him. As you look at what Jesus says, there's that take courage phrase, which we're taking just as a general theme. But it, he also, it, first, Jesus encourages him about what he's already done. Jesus encourages him about, about, about what he had already done. Everything didn't go the way that, that Paul expected, but Paul was told that he had been faithful. You, you did what I called you to do, Paul. You proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem as the Spirit had led you to. And Paul is encouraged that, that what he said to the crowd when he told them of how Jesus had met him on the road to Damascus, that that was good and that was right, that it may have resulted in a mob and it may have resulted in his, in his imprisonment, but he did what the Lord called him to do. The Lord had him right where he wanted him in those barracks, and Paul had not messed up by trying to speak the truth to his fellow Jews. And then Jesus assures him about what he is going to do. So he's, he's encouraged about what he's done, and now Jesus is assuring him about what he's going to do. He makes it clear that Paul is not going to rot away in prison in Jerusalem, but that he's going to get to Rome. He's going to get there to proclaim the gospel. He had not misunderstood the Spirit's leading when he determined to go to Rome. And this whole trial, imprisonment cycle is not going to throw off God's plans. Of course, how that's going to happen was not according to Paul's plan. The destination and the mission remained the same, but the means of getting there were beyond what Paul could have imagined. And so he needed to trust that even in this imprisonment, the Lord was standing by his side. The Lord had used him and the Lord would continue to use him. I think like Paul, we can, we can take courage. We can take courage as we seek to align our desires with God's will. If we're seeking for God's glory and the spread of the good word of the gospel to all nations, if we're seeking to grow in faithfulness and holiness, then we can take courage. We, we may not have a, a clear promise like Paul did or a vision in the night, but as we seek to testify with our lives to the glory of God and the goodness of Jesus and the grace of the Spirit, we can be certain that he's not going to allow his purposes for us to fail. Our path may not be what we expect. It may not even be what we want. The way that God uses our lives to accomplish his, his purpose may not be the path that we would have chosen if we had the choice. But if our desire is for the glory of God and growth and sanctification and the spread of the gospel, then we can know the peace of God that comes even in the midst of the most fearful circumstances. We can trust that, that he has used us in the past, that he will continue to use us in the future, that he has plans for us. I'd say, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are moments when Jesus wants to speak words of hope to us, when, we, when, when despair wants to creep in, when all around our soul is giving way, when every dream and hope and comfort that we have had seems to be sinking in some sort of an ocean, when we're afraid and we're scared and we're uncertain, there's a word of Christ that comes to us. It could be in a sermon. It could be in this sermon or some other sermon. 
spoken by someone else. I don't know. It, it could be a brother or sister in Christ who speaks the truth of God's sovereign love in your heart. Maybe it's a word of scripture, but maybe it's just the truth of God's sovereignty, the truth of God's love, the truth of God's peace. It could be as you're reading God's word that you read a, a section of scripture You've read so many times, and yet it just jumps off the page. It's as if the Spirit is speaking it to your hearts, to, to, to your heart to encourage you. But however it comes, our Father, through Christ and through His Word, by the Spirit, stands by us and encourages us when our hearts need it most. And so I just want to encourage you to listen for that encouragement and be, be in places where you need to hear it. Part of the reason we come to church is, is to hear God's word spoken so we can be encouraged and also to hear one another speaking truth into our lives. The reason we read the scriptures in the morning is not because uh, that earns our salvation in some way. Far from it. Rather, it keeps us trusting. It reminds us that, that God is faithful. It tells us who he is, that he's with us, that he's standing by us, that his plans will never fail. So listen for that encouragement and seek to speak those words of encouragement. That is, the Spirit would lead you to talk to others as you're reading the Scriptures, to share the Scriptures, as we have potluck together and someone is discouraged, that you are asking the Spirit to speak through you, to say the words that someone needs to hear. So we've seen these scenes, a, a scene of sharp words, sharp division, and now this supernatural encouragement. And the final scene of this chapter, I think, serves as an immediate confirmation of what Jesus had just told Paul. It's, it's a for instance. Let's say, Paul, that, I don't know, 40 guys decide they want to kill you. Can I protect you? I think that's what this is. It's a, it's a for instance. And so we'll call this scene sovereign deliverance. I got my S's in. Are you proud of me? Sovereign deliverance. <laughs> Luke describes the story really well. And so I, I'm not going to rehash it too much. But man, what an what a intriguing story, right? Basically, what happens is Paul's nephew, which is so interesting, and every commentator I read just wants to know more about Paul's family. Paul had a sister? Paul had a brother-in-law? Paul had a nephew? This is wild. Uh, but basically, Paul's nephew hears of a plot to kill Paul. He tells Paul, and Paul says, well, you got to tell someone else. And so he eventually gets to the tribune, which means this guy must have been well-connected in some way, shape, or form to be able to not only get in the barracks to talk to Paul, but then be able to talk to the tribune in some sort of private meeting and for the tribune to believe him. Um, one guy I was listening to was saying something to the effect of that's, you know, imagine going to not just a police officer, but someone high in the government and telling them, hey, I heard about this plot and then they believe you. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Uh, so this is, God is working sovereignly in this situation. This tribune then whisks Paul out of Jerusalem at three in the morning taking him to Capernaum with the hopes that he's going to get a fair trial there because it's not going to happen in Jerusalem. And through this, Paul leaves behind this, this group of really hungry assassins because they're not eating until Paul's dead. So they got a long time to not eat, it looks like. Um, and they're probably very frustrated at this point. You just look at this, how wonderfully and skillfully God is at work in all the details of Paul's life and in the details of our lives. How did the nephew hear this? And, and he's the right guy to hear it because he's got the connections. And again, this tribune listens to him and this tribune wants to protect Paul's life. I mean, all the details are just astounding. It's, it's amazing what God is doing. And so 
for the fourth time, the tribune saves Paul's life. And he writes a letter to Felix. And um, he saves Paul's life, and he also does a little bit of rescuing himself in the letter, if you pay attention to it. He gives most of the details very accurately, but he kind of leaves out the fact that he had bound Paul um, and, and wanted to beat him, even though he was a, a Roman citizen. Uh, the knowledge that he was a Roman citizen in his account comes a little bit beforehand than in what actually happened, which I guess we'll give him a, a pass on that for now. But uh, most of his, the, the thing that's most clear in his statement is what? Paul is innocent. Paul's really done nothing wrong. He does not, he's done nothing deserving death. And so he sends Paul away by night and we're given a picture, not of Rome's power, but of God's protection. He makes this trip to Capernaum that night and he's accompanied. Did you see how many people were with him? Verse 23, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's, that's 470 trained Roman soldiers that are gonna go with Paul. And he's given, it says, provide mounts for Paul. This was a long journey. So we're gonna give Paul at least two horses uh, so that, that it goes okay. Um, it reminds us that, that the father is watching over Paul through the means of, of the Roman soldiers, through the means of, of this, this Roman tribune. And it encourages us, doesn't it? We can trust in God's strong and sovereign hand to deliver us. He can use whoever and whatever he wants. He is in control. He's in control of what's going on here. He's protecting Paul and he can protect us. John Stott says of this scene, even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. Some simple statement, even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. The plan of the Jewish assassin seemed like a sure thing, didn't it? 40 guys ambushing Paul, no problem, we got him. But God had other plans. And Paul was able to see the strength of God's arm working on his behalf. What a Again, a moment to say, God, God has me in his hand. Nothing can harm me. Nothing can, can thwart God's plans. I find this all reminiscent of the stories of, of say, Joseph or, or Esther or, or David or so many others where Paul just works providentially and powerfully on behalf of his children in all the different details of the people that come in their lives and the situations that they face. He's always working. And so we're encouraged to trust that even when others falsely accuse us or scorn us, that truth prevails and God does what he wants. He is at work. Take courage. Don't be afraid. When you hear that though, don't hear me saying that it's all gonna be easy because it won't be. I mean, Paul is still an accused prisoner. He's still in the Roman barracks. He's still gotta go through all of these trials. The whole situation would be frustrating and scary and painful. I'm reminded of one of my favorite points in uh, Dr. Seuss's book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Whenever we go to the chiropractor, I get to read it. And I, I love when my kids pick it out because it's just great. But I would read the whole thing, but we don't have time. But there's this part where it says, you won't lag behind because you'll have all the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. Except when you don't. <laughs> because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. 
Isn't that wonderful realism from Dr. Seuss? I think it's sorely lacking in our world that wants to believe that everything will be okay as long as we put our minds to it, that, that nothing can stop the individual who works really hard. No, except when they don't go well, when things don't go right. I think that's a realism that's lacking in Christianity at times, when we think that hard things or opposition or suffering or trials or being in prison or being beaten, that these things mean that God is against us. Because there are times when we will all find ourselves at at rock bottom, when we'll find our places in despair, and we wonder, what in the world is God doing? And so we come to stories like this. And we come, and, and the story says to us, take courage. Don't be afraid. Even when, when it looks like everything is against you. Because even when it does, it's not. It's not because nothing will ever go wrong, but it's, it's because if our desire is to live a life that testifies to God's grace in Christ, then he's going to accomplish that no matter what comes our way. You've probably heard this before, but we are all invincible until Jesus calls us home. And he's not going to call us home until he's done everything that he wants to do with us, until he's accomplished all of his purposes. So take courage. Nothing can thwart God's purposes and plans for his children. Nothing can thwart his plans and his purposes for you. Which is a truth that is at the core of what makes us children of God. We're adopted into God's family through faith that God has rescued us. How? Through the death and resurrection of his son. That our hope is not built on on what is good in us or having good things happen to us. Our hope is rooted in the fact that Jesus was good and that the worst thing that ever happened, his crucifixion, has purchased our eternal life. Think about this. The plot to kill Paul was thwarted. The plot to kill Jesus was not. Judas succeeded, as it were. And Pilate was way less honorable than this Roman tribune. And Jesus died. And yet, in his death, he testifies to the gospel. He glorifies the Father. His death was not an accident. It didn't mean that God's plan was thwarted, that his purposes didn't happen. His death and resurrection were part of the plan that God has turned for good for all people. And so we look at the cross and we're reminded to take courage. Nothing can thwart God's plans and purposes for his children. Not even death. We get to remember Christ's death this afternoon as we take the Lord's Supper together. And as we take this meal, we remember Jesus' death. And we announce that God's purposes, though sometimes confusing, always are accomplished And he brings life and beauty out of death and darkness. He has done it through Christ. And so take courage. He can do it through each of us.